This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome history professor and author Charles Postel. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Okay. Charles Postel is author of the book Equality, an American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. Charles Postel is a history professor at San Francisco State University. He previously wrote the book The Populist Vision, which won awards in 2008. The new book delves into the late 19th century in America, focusing on three organizations. We'll uh, talk more about them in a moment. But I did want to ask you uh, as a general question, why, why did you decide on equality as the word to lead off the title of this book? You know, the, my sources led me to that word. I had no plan to use that word. But equality was such a big issue at that time. Uh, that I felt I didn't have any other choice. They were debating, uh, arguing, discussing, promoting what equality meant after the Civil War, and uh, so I decided to go with I decided to go with my sources. That's what they're talking about. That's what I'm writing about. The uh, new book, as I mentioned before, delves into the late 19th century, talking about three organizations: the Grange, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and the Knights of Labor. All of them, in one way or another, I mean, they pursued other things or other causes, but they were founded, or would you say, or they had a philosophy that wanted them to promote equality, equality among the sexes, equality among the races, if you will. Was that what they were trying to do? Yeah, well, I would I would argue that each of them had their own notions of equality, and that's one of the striking things that this book goes into. Farmers had their idea of what equality meant in terms of economics in the United States. They were very concerned with the rise of monopoly. What did the, what did a railroad monopoly mean in terms of economic equality? They were interested in equality of 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 the business interest of farming in the national economy. Women's Rights movements obviously had different ideas about equality and the place of women in the home, place of women in American politics, the right of political rights of women, economic rights of women. African-Americans had their issues, uh, very sharp issues. What did, what did emancipation mean if they, without equality in terms of before the law and in economics and other affairs? Uh, and then, of course, there's the labor movement, which had their own notions of equality. And what did that mean? Equality between capital and labor, as they would talk about it. Mm. So the book is really about how these different forces thought about equality. And it's sometimes they merged and fused and, and, and made quite important strides towards a more humane and equal just society. And sometimes these notions of equality did not did not do well together mm-hmm. and conflicted, mm-hmm. and the results were disastrous. As you do in the book, let's start with the Grange. I've you know heard of the Grange. I've seen Grange buildings here in uh, in uh, upstate New York. This farming society came to be right after the Civil War, as as I understand it. But it wasn't wasn't started by farmers, but by federal bureaucrats. Well, yes. I mean, that's one of the stories we get in the United States is that farmers are always in rebellion against Washington and the federal bureaucrats, which, of course, couldn't be farther from the truth. Farmers have always had a symbiotic, important relationship with 
with Washington. And after the Civil War, uh, uh, there was a group of a group of people who worked in the federal offices in Washington, in the Treasury Department, Post Office, uh, uh, and the Agricultural Department, and they were interested in building an organization of farmers, a national organization of farmers that would be headquartered in Washington and ultimately would be part of the Department of Agriculture. It didn't go that way, but that was their original design. And they called it the Grange. Uh, or the patrons national national grange or the patrons of, of husbandry mm-hmm. and it was formed in a federal office building uh in 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 Washington in 1867 um uh there were six federal employees and one retired uh Wall Street Wall Street investor uh were the seven people who founded it and within four three or four years it was a national organization of farmers, coast to coast, north, south, east, and west, uh, and and that's the story. And even the name it was something. Well, they didn't make up, but they knew they had to come up with a catchy name for it, and they uh, chose chose that the Grange, which I guess is an, an archaic word for a barn or something like that. Right. Exactly. Uh, these 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 gentlemen back there, and they were all men except as the founders were, and they were all sitting there in Washington, and they were trying to figure out what this organization should look like. And so they're looking through uh, old literature to find the name. That's where they get the Grange name. They're looking through uh, old stories about uh, Greek and Roman myths, and that's where they get much of the sort of the, the paraphernalia of the ideas of what this organization should should call itself internally in their in their rich, so-called rituals of the organization, um, and and they even uh, they even go up to New York City and 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 go to the music stores to find music with what they said music with snap in it to make their meetings more lively. And, and these were this is how the so-called traditions of the train of the Grange were were first established. I mean, on a social aspect, and this probably applies maybe to the Women's Christian Temperance Union as well, they were following the lead of other um, organizations, uh, like say like the Masons. I mean, they were trying to make it kind of comp- a little bit complicated and uh, appealing to people, and, and they had uh, you know more activities than just tr- promoting uh, better economic times for the f- farmers. Right, the the the, the 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 Masons was a model for for part of the Grange. They were, a number of the Grange founders were Masons, but they departed from the Masons in some really important ways. The the key part, of course, is is they believed in equality of the sexes, and uh, the Grange uh, was a organization that attracted uh, large numbers of women uh, as lecturers and activists within the Grange. Uh, another really important part is they also saw themselves as a business organization. They were an organization of farmers in business, uh, and uh, the, the collective action of farmers for the equality of farmers in the national economy. Mm. And those two things, I think, account for why the Grange became so big and so strong so quickly. It attracted women uh, in their goals of equal rights, and attracted uh, farmers in their economic interests for for improving their lot in the national economy. 
We're talking with Charles Postel. He is author of uh, the book Equality and American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896. Back in uh, a moment, just want to uh, mention to you that we keep the Historian's Podcast on the Internet thanks to your contributions. We have a GoFundMe page, gofundme.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash historians. Easy to donate online. Or if you'd rather uh, send in a check, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Charles Postel with us, author of the book Equality and American Dilemma. We've been talking about the Grange. Let me leave them uh, for a while because we're advancing through time here. Uh, the second organization you take up is, is one that, I, I kind of remember from my youth, I think my grandmother may have been active in this organization, and the organization is the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. I mean, I, what I thought of it, you know, as growing up and hearing about my grandmother being in it, I said, well, they're, you know, they were dries, they were uh, for t- uh, alcoholic temperance, probably supporters of prohibition, and they were, but they, the WCTU was much more than that, wasn't it? It was much more than that. I mean, we remember it through the through the lens of prohibition, and it's sort of become almost a joke of, in the sense that the prohibition was such a bad idea, the WCTU was a bad idea. But the WCTU in the, in the 1870s, and especially the 1880s, was really a, a, a very significant organization of American women. Uh, it was ten times the size of the suffrage organizations of the time. It was much more significant and much bigger. Uh, and Frances Willard, the, the president of the WCTU, was probably the most, or not probably, she surely was the most influential and dynamic and important woman's leader in the United States in the late 19th century, in those decades. Uh, and her vision of the WCTU was not just to defeat alcohol, but the reason why he wanted to defeat alcohol is because the saloon was bad for sexual equality. It, 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 it disrupted the relationship between men, men and women. And the agenda of the WCTU should be a broad agenda for women's economic rights, divorce rights, legal rights, uh, economic rights, and voting rights. And so the WCTU really became a center of the women's struggle for equality. Mm. And in fact, uh, Frances Willard, I I forget the phrase, I'm sure you'll remember it, Uh, they they took on anything, or she had some sort of slogan, we do everything. Her her slogan was a do everything, or it was a do everything policy. And And that meant... You know, if if you were in a WCTU uh, local, you could be in favor of fighting to, for prohibition, but maybe your issue really was child labor laws, or maybe your issue really was uh, age of consent laws, or or protection of women at work, or the eight-hour day, and you could take up all of those things under the rubric of the WCTU, and, and women did. The third organization that you, you deal with in the book uh, is the the Knights of Labor. And I don't know if it's exactly accurate to say it was a prototype or an early labor union. It was, you know, maybe a different kind of organization. And I'm familiar with that from my role. I write about local history in my 
hometown of uh, Amsterdam, New York, because we had, you know, the Knights of Labor were a factor there in the 1880s, as they were in many uh, parts of the of the country. And one of the leading women of the Knights of Labor, Leonora Berry, came from uh, uh, Amsterdam, or she was a uh, worked in a mill in Amsterdam and, and then be, became moved up the line uh, in the organization. But um, well, tell us, what, what was the Knights of Labor? Well, your, your reference to Leonor Berry is very important. The Knights of Labor started out as a small group of, of skilled craftsmen in Philadelphia in the garment trade, uh, but they believed in human equality in a much broader scale. And by the 19, uh, I'm sorry, by the 1880s, it was a really massive organization uh, uh, that united working people across lines of skill, across lines of gender, across lines of race, ethnicity. Um, it was the general organization of of wage earners, and not just wage earners, farmers and others joined it. And Leonora Burry was an important figure in spreading. Uh, uh, the nights to working-class women in, in America. Hmm. Now, all three of these organizations dealt with, and you know, had to deal with uh, the, uh, the problems of the aftermath of the Civil War and Reconstruction in the American South, and had to deal uh, with the issue of equality for African Americans. Um, all, all three organizations, uh, you know, underwent. A kind of changes in that regard. It seems to me, you know, re- uh, reading the book, that the Knights of Labor was maybe most successful in actually advocating for some form of uh, equality or participation, if not equality, for African Americans. But let me ask you about that. How did these three organizations uh, attack this or handle this uh, issue of the of the racial divide in America? The Grange played a very important role in the post-Civil War, and I think a very unfortunate role. It, it had the idea that we, we want to unify farmers for equality in the economy, and their idea was of, of, of was unify across the Mason-Dixon line, repair the, de- the division of the Civil War. But by doing that, the, the way to do that was to make unification of the white workers of the North, or the white farmers of the North, with the white plantation owners of the South. And this precluded the rights of African Americans. This was a time of Reconstruction. Uh, governments, when you're these experiments and, and biracial democracy across the former Confederacy, and the Grange came out in support of abolishing those experiments in the name that they denied equality to the white planter. And they fought against federal protections of African American civil rights in the name of equality for the white for the white South. Hmm. And in a certain sense, both the WCTU and the Knights accepted that framework, that the way to unite the country was on the basis of essentially uh, uh, getting rid of federal reconstruction, getting rid of federal protection for African Americans, and creating solidarity among white people, North and South. But both the WCTU and the Knights of Labor had a large black membership. And black members of the WCTU and of the Knights of Labor fought for racial equality within the ranks of those organizations. And that was pretty significant. It was was most significant within the Knights, where by the late 1880s, 
it, the Knights of Labor really was an organization of the black poor in in the southern states, not just not just cotton pickers, but dishwashers and household workers. Uh, they joined the Knights in, in large numbers, and there was a great promise in this. But ultimately, this uh, notion of the solidarity of across the Mason-Dixon line of basically whites across the Mason-Dixon line went out in the Knights as well. And that's part of the great tragedy of, of this story. With the uh, WCTU, Women's Christian Temperance Union, the, um, the leader, Francis Willard, uh, was this uh, highly regarded social reformer, right? But at the end of her, uh, or toward the end of her career, she became embroiled in a controversy with an African-American woman who faulted Willard for not taking a stronger stand against lynching. Yes, Ida B. Wells was the great crusader against lynching and a heroic, a heroic struggler on this front, and um, uh, and and Francis Willard uh, uh, confronted Ida B. Willard. Uh, sorry, Ida B. Wells and Francis Willard actually got into a dispute in England. They were both lecturing in England, and the English audiences asked Ida B. Wells, uh, uh, "You say this lynching is such a terrible thing, but..." Francis Willard, who's the, the great leader of American women, says it's not a problem, essentially. And, and so it became a public con- controversy in that way. And the gist of it was that, that Francis Willard was very politically influential, had, had a lot of political ambition, and her political ambitions rested on an alliance with the southern white women who were apologists for lynch mobs. Mm. And so um, for Frances Willard to break with that alliance with these southern white women well, was, a, was a threat to her political project. And accordingly, she did become an apologist for lynch mobs. And this was, by this time, African-American women are, are leaving the WCTU because, because of this problem. It's no longer serving their interests. Uh, and, and that's another sad part of the story. With, with the uh, Knights of Labor uh, and their leader, Terence Powderly, uh, first let me ask you about him. Uh, I mentioned how the Grange wasn't really founded by farmers. Was Terence Powderly really a working man? Terence Powderly was very much a working man. Terence Powderly was, uh, he, this, he, this is Scranton, Pennsylvania. He worked in the railroad yards there. Uh, he was in the midst of, you know, uh, the working class movement there. He's elected. He was actually elected several times as the mayor of Scranton, uh, but he was a working class person, and uh, he was a very influential and, and important person. He's often dismissed uh, in history as as sort of a middle class utopian figure, but but he was a very important figure in 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 that history, uh, in that working class history. And it, it wasn't simple. I mean, and your book has a lot of nuance on uh, all of these uh, topics. But uh, Powderly, well, just I mean, in general, he was uh, advocating that black and white workers could be in, in the same union, uh, to use a term I'm more familiar with in, like, the Knights. Uh, did he? But, uh, but it was an imperfect uh, kind of approach, and it was very hard to accomplish. Powderly believed strongly that the Knights of Labor, his labor organization, which, which by the way, was the strongest and biggest labor organization in the history of the United States and probably the history of the world up until that time, uh, 
It had nearly a million members. It was unbelievable in terms of the whole world was watching the Knights of Labor at that time. And one of the reasons why it was so successful is because of people like Terence Powderly insisted that every local, every assembly of the Knights of Labor accept all workers in that industry. If you were a coal miner and you were black, it didn't matter. You were you needed to be part of that assembly. Now, many of the assemblies were segregated, but the Knights organized them, uh, organized across race, across across ethnicities. They didn't exclude the Irish. Many of them were Irish. They didn't exclude the Germans. Many of them were German, uh, and so forth. So it really was a massive labor organization. Uh, and in that sense, they were successful. Uh, what Ultimately, what broke them in terms of their racial solidarity was Terence Powderly made an association with another farmers association, which, which superseded the Grange. This is uh, in the late 1880s, the Farmers Alliance. And this is what forms the Populist Party, when the Knights of Labor and the Farmers Alliance get together, along with Francis Willard and the WCTU, they all get together and they create the Populist Coalition, which becomes the Populist Party. And in the formation of that coalition, uh, uh, Terence Powderly essentially says, uh, we will allow the management of the Negro to the white farmer of the South. And this ruptures what was left of this alliance between black and white workers in the Knights of Labor. Mm. And that's also part of this story. Kind um, of his washing well, his hands of it or saying, well, they'll, they'll handle the Negro question. That's right. And I, I don't know if it's ironically, but uh, I was so surprised to read that at, toward the end, uh, black members of the Knights of Labor, I don't know, they, they come to finally predominate? I mean, they, uh, it had great appeal in the rural areas of the South uh, with the African-Americans uh, working in the mines or working in the cotton fields and so on. This is true. In, the, in, the, in much of the rural South uh, and small-town South, African-Americans joined in large numbers. And these were the poorest of the poor, people who worked in, in the mines, in the lumberyards, uh, but also women, people who, uh, domestic servants, uh, people, laundry women, uh, they joined the Knights of Labor and uh, did, did so to protect their interests. It was really a remarkable, remarkable, important organization for the African-American community uh, in, the, in the late 1880s. Why did the Knights of Labor, why did that exist today? How did it end? Well, it had a lot of problems. I mean, the, it, it, the, the key issue was the employers met the Knights of Labor with furious resistance. Uh, and uh, there were the, the Knights' greatest strength at one point was both in the coal fields and the railroads, railroad uh, systems of, across the United States. And the railroad corporations met the Knights with, with, with violence. The army was brought out. Uh, a series of nights strikes were broken, uh, and the railroad men, uh, the railroad employees were, were blacklisted. They never were going to work on the railroad again. And this was duplicated across manufacturing and other businesses across the United States where employers or associations, they formed combinations and dedicated to ensuring that no one who worked for the Knights would work on these, you know, in, in this way. So repression was very serious. Uh, people were hunted down, chased out. 
and and much of the Knights was broken just by sheer oppression. Uh, there were other things going against them. Uh, the Knights had this policy of breaking the color line. They openly broke the color line in the, in the South and elsewhere. And many Southern members of the Knights w- were not going to go along with that. And and some and some uh, by the late 1880s. Uh, Many white members of the Knights are leaving the Knights because of its of its mm-hmm. policy of breaking the color line. Uh, in other words, violating the the segregation codes. And, and let me just uh, dampen maybe a little. Uh, you know, if there's enthusiasm building here for the Knights of Labor, uh, maybe they did try to bridge the gap between black and white. The Chinese were a different story. They were not for Chinese uh, immigrants. Yes, Chinese were a different story, and um, I think that was the sort of it, uh, uh, one of the real Achilles' heel of the Knights. They they campaigned hard uh, against hiring of Chinese workers, against for, in favor of Chinese exclusion. Their argument for this was the Chinese weren't free labor. They considered them in the category of convict labor, uh, which is another com- com- competitive force to free labor. And they attacked the Chinese labor as unfree labor, which was really just a smear, because, in fact, many Chinese immigrants were as free as any other immigrants. Uh, but they had this idea that they were coolie labor or unfree labor. And this actually provided an opening wedge for them to go after other groups. Uh, and it was this was part of the unraveling of mm-hmm. the unified Knights of, Knights of Labor. I do think it's important to point out, though, that the hostility to the Chinese was mainly on the West Coast or centered on the West Coast. And there was a significant number of Knights who did want to organize the Chinese. And in New York City, there were actually some important uh, assemblies of the Knights of Labor organized by Chinese workers. Um, so even there, it's a, it's a mixed story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you're absolutely right. The Chinese problem was was really a, 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 a Achilles' heel for the Knights in terms of their vision of of a egalitarian humanistic project. Well, we're, we're coming to near the end of the of the podcast, um, and I do want to thank our guest for being uh, with us. And I recommend his book. Uh, and I don't honestly don't do this for maybe all the books we talk about on the program, but I've read this one, and I recommend you read "Equality: An American Dilemma, 1866 to 1896." Uh, in connection with what we were just talking about, uh, Mister Powderly. Uh, right now, his first name has eluded me. Uh, Terrence, he, yeah, Terrence Powderly, yeah. Yeah, Terrence Powderly. After leaving the Knights of Labor, or after the Knights of Labor is foundering, he goes to work for the federal government, and he works on banning Chinese immigration? He does go work for the federal government, and he works for the immigration uh, bureaucracy, and part of that is keeping Chinese out of the United States. And, that's, and he does that for—it's a second career. He does it for many, many years. Uh, at the same time, he very much connect, kept, remained connected to the labor movement, including radical sections of the labor movement. Uh, you know, he is, he's a very close friend of Mother Jones and the whole uh, coal miner struggles of the early 20th century, and he keeps his connections there. So Powderly is a complicated figure. Um, uh, yep, he's a federal bureaucrat, and he's enforcing laws against Chinese immigration and other things. He's also uh, 
very much has one foot in organizing the coal miners and other struggling working-class activists. Mm. And just very quickly, the WCTU in the 1920s allies itself with the Ku Klux Klan? The WCTU in the the 1870s and 80s with Francis Willard actually had a relatively open views about religion and politics. Uh, Francis Willard herself was interested in Buddhism and other spiritual explorations and she was something of a of a socialist. Uh, she advocated for for socialism and other projects of that nature. After her death and into the 20th century, the focus of the WCTU shrank. And so it's in those days of of prohibition enforcement. Yes, they did make alliances with people like the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. Our guest has been Charles Postel. His book, Equality and American Dilemma. This has been the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.